So I'm interested not in what curiosity is, but in how curiosity moves, and then in how it moves us. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Today, I want to talk about curiosity in politics, not the particulars of policy and elections. We'll get to that topic in a few weeks when WERA's own affairs, current affairs junkie, producer and host of Enlighten Me, Andrea Cameron, joins me. Now, today, I want to talk about curiosity as a political act in and of itself. Perry Zern is a professor in the philosophy department at American University. He actually teaches classes on curiosity. He was a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Curiosity, which is based at the University of Pennsylvania. And with fellow Center for Curiosity alum Arjun Shankar, he's co-author of the forthcoming transdisciplinary collection, Curiosity Studies, Towards a New Ecology of Knowledge, and with Danielle Bassett, Curious Minds, coming in 2020. He's deep into curiosity. He's the one who proposed the topic in fact, the one who has made it declarative, curiosity is political. The one who's looking at his own teaching and the hierarchy and structures within academe and elsewhere to see how he, how we, might just upend it all. I can't wait for this conversation. But before we get started, this is Fall Fun Drive here at Arlington Independent Media, and I want to put in a fast plug. As you listen to this conversation, as your worldview enlarges, your curiosity is piqued, as you begin to think about all the ways you can disrupt the current world order with the insights you gain today, as all of that is going on, I want you to remember that it's all only possible because we have access to fabulous and totally independent media. And although it's free for the taking, it's not free in the making. If you value what you hear on WERA, see on our cable channels, know of our expert trainings, I ask that you give Arlington Independent Media your support, that you make a donation that reflects the value you ascribe to free thought and the diverse voices you get to hear from your community. Do it to promote curiosity, if nothing else. Please visit arlingtonmedia.org and make your tax-deductible contribution today. Thank you. So, How is curiosity political? What's to be gained or changed by rewarding and empowering curiosity in general and maybe from historically underrepresented people in particular? What would that look like? How do we get there? I'm delighted Perry Zern is here with me to help me figure that out. So welcome, Perry. Thanks. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. So you say curiosity is political, Vladimir Nabokov wrote that curiosity is insubordination in its purest form. Are you saying the same things or are they something quite different? We're saying something different, I believe. Yeah, because I think I'm convinced that curiosity can serve insubordinate goals. But I also think that curiosity can get stuck. I think it can get sedimented. I think it can get trained. And I think we can lose almost the curious element of curiosity. And what I mean by this is that we can get trained to ask certain questions and just those questions or to take certain objects 
as the objects of our curiosity and not other objects. Um, curiosity, I think, when it's insubordinate is when it moves to unexpected questions. It moves to unexpected questioners. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what can permit social change. So tell me what you mean by curiosity is political. I mean that it is informed by our social commitments and values, um, and it's embedded in our political hierarchies. So that curiosity, the ways that we ask questions, the people who end up asking the most dominant questions, this is all within a political framework. It doesn't, ex curiosity never exists outside of politics. So it's about power and hierarchy. It's always about power. Yes, there's a hierarchy of questions. There's a hierarchy of questioners. Um, and when we change that, I think we can change the world. Well, and maybe that's where that that idea that it's insubordinate when people who are looking to change the status quo, some people view that as insubordination, right? Absolutely. You and I maybe view that differently, but but part of the part of the culture around curiosity has been this sort of suspicion about it, right? Yeah, that it's transgressive or that it can be right. transgressive, that it reaches outside the limits of what is known and what is expected, and therefore, who knows what can come. So what made you curious about curiosity? I mean, why did you go towards curiosity if it's if it's got that baggage from the past? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I, I think there are all sorts of reasons uh, that I came to curiosity. I think I was raised by a lot of very curious people in, in many senses of the term. Um, so I found myself to be... Just, just a very curious person, um, and yet when I got to college, so I, I ended up being homeschooled for, f from um, kindergarten through 12th grade, and um, this was a very sort of self-driven, holistic kind of education. I remember just as an example, I did a, a project growing up on mushrooms, and I, did, I studied the science of mushrooms, I studied the history of mushrooms, I studied when mushrooms showed up in classical literature, in Alice in Wonderland, for instance. Um, I, learned how, uh, I learned about photography so I could photograph mushrooms. So it was very just how many ways can you make a mushroom come alive? Um, and I think it's that kind of excitement and attention that I bring to curiosity itself. How many ways can I make curiosity um, come alive? But then when I got to college, I sat in a lot of large lecture courses, and I just, I realized the only place where that kind of robust curiosity was supported was in my honors classes. All mm. my regular classes, not just learn the material, just give it back to me. Um, so I thought, no, nah, we, we, we need to save curiosity, <laughs> I think, from the institutions of curiosity. Ah, interesting. So we'll get to that, right? Because you're actually really trying to think about that, you know, sort of challenging your own instructional techniques and yes. you know how do you how do you so I think that's very brave for starters and thank you sure. for doing that because I think it's so important so you've described curiosity actually as kind of this ensemble of investigative practices mm. which I have to say is actually one of my favorite definitions of curiosity so far oh, good. because I I worry sometimes that we're using one word to describe an awful lot of stuff that actually bears no resemblance to one another yeah and and I think you've actually sort of elegantly kind of created a bucket that actually holds all of it. Mm. Did you come up with that yourself? Is that something you've kind of developed over time? And where does that come from? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I uh, speaking of sort of curiosity's encouragement or discouragement in, in uh, 
classic educational settings. I, I kept coming back to curiosity and kind of my own frustrated curiosity in higher ed and decided, you know, I really want to do a, a PhD thesis on, on curiosity. And my, my advisors said, you know, no, that's not really a, a philosophical question. It's not a real question. It's not a real question. <laughs> curiosity is not a real question. Partly because uh, none of the canonical philosophers had written a book on curiosity. Uh-huh. They've, they've written um, sentences, they've written paragraphs, they've written some chapters, but not a book. The very first book was published just in 2011 by Ilan Inan, uh, who's a professor of philosophy at Boziçi University in Turkey. It's called The Philosophy of Curiosity. But so there was a lot of resistance to this. And, and in order to get my advisors to to support my project, I had to show here's where curiosity comes up all across the history of philosophy. Uh So I have, at first I had this very large binder, you know, this was in 2008, and now I have a hundreds of pages document uh, on my computer, all the ways in which curiosity comes up. And the more I read through this document, the more I realized there, there are at least three, I call them curious characters that keep popping up across the history of, of Western thought in particular. The first is the busybody. The busybody is somebody who's interested in a lot of different things, wants to know all kinds of information about just about anything. The second is a hunter. Mm -hmm. And the hunter wants to know um, something specific about their personal trajectory, right? What are they asking? What are they focused on? I want to get to the next piece of that thing I'm interested in. I think that's a different sort of curiosity. It moves differently. So I'm interested not in what curiosity is, but in how curiosity moves, mm. and then in how it moves us, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. But then the third, so there's there's really only three so far that I've developed. The third is the dancer. And the dancer is not kind of interested in everything or just interested in one thing, but is but wants to create, has to create, has to use curiosity to take new risks, imagine new things, um, put things together that were never expected together. And that's an, that's kind of a radical creative curiosity. So is there a hierarchy? Is there a, a political, a social, a power hierarchy around those? I think. That's a great question. I think so. I think the, I think the focused curiosity is the one that's given the most credit. Uh-huh. Um, the kind of hunter-like curiosity, that's what gets you promotions and what gets you jobs and what gets you research grants. Right. Uh, published. And publications. <laughs> um, but I think the busybody curiosity, the kind of I'll, I'll go anywhere, I'll follow any uh, breeze, I think, I think that's some of the stuff that keeps curiosity alive. Uh-huh. I think I've seen kind of a killing of curiosity when it becomes too focused and too driven toward mastery instead of toward uh, risk and experimentation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think the dancer curiosity, I think I think this is the most perhaps romanticized vision of curiosity, that it's creating something new, asking the, the unthinkable, the impossible questions, and then seeing if we could make it come about. But that's where, on the one hand, that's where genius happens, but I think that's also where everyday kind of igniting of our passion for life happens. Uh-huh. Is that where the more political version of curiosity comes in? Absolutely. Yeah. I think absolutely. Because the by which I mean political resistance, right. um, the kinds of curiosity that changes how politics works or what our social values are or how we interrelate with one another, that changes when someone says, hey, let's, we have to think outside the box. We have to change how things are working. We have to give up all of our current um, kind of commitments and really 
really rock the boat. Yeah, yeah. So, do you um, do you identify with one of those models yourself? Yeah, you know, I've been working with these models for a couple of years now, <laughs> and at first, I I kind of shyly said, "I'm I'm a hunter who wants to be a dancer," um, but I think I think honestly. Uh, I have a, I think I have a strong affinity for each of these, and what I'm struggling to create in academia and in my life is a way in which the three can work together and to strengthen each other. Yeah. Um, I remember, I remember being told, for instance, when taking my my major classes, your your writing is too creative, right? You're doing too much of oh. this creative curiosity. Uh-huh. You need to just do the mastery part for now. Um, and I want to, I want to do more than that. I wanna yeah, do all of them. yeah. Well, it's interesting because you know, this morning I was thinking about this, and I'm thinking, well, which am I? And I didn't, I don't strongly identify with any of them. I mean, I think of them more in kind of a three dimensional sense. Um, that uh, there's a point somewhere between those three that's me. And uh, so I found that interesting. And then I have to confess, I, for me, um, and I thought this was interesting given your particular work uh, on gender identity and, and transgender, mm-hmm. to me they evoke, they're gender evocative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typically we talk about busybodies and the image I get is women. I mean, I'm not proud of that, but that's mm-hmm. what, that's, Definitely the, the historic image. Hunter, absolutely male. Mm-hmm. Dancer, more likely female than male. Mm-hmm. And so I'm listening to you talking and thinking, well, this is interesting because actually the really transgressive, um, innovative one is mm. the the one that I see as more female. Do you mm-hmm. do you think of them that? Is this just me or do you think of them that way? Or have you heard that before? Or? Yeah, yeah. I would love to do a more systematic study of, of the – the gendered ways in which each of these figures or curious characters appears, yeah. um, both historically and today. So I think we've inherited, as you're pointing out, we've inherited um, a gendered sense of each of these sorts of curiosity. Right. One one thing that comes up that's interesting is the the busybody and the, is is typically feminized um, um, in the and today in the form of kind of the of gossip. Right. right. You want to know all everybody's stories and then you want to share everybody's stories. But I think that there's something deeply important about caring about people's stories and about keeping safe people's stories, yeah. sharing people's stories, letting them live new lives. I think this is something that can be a foundation of, of um, cultural connection that we're missing yeah. actually today. Yeah. So I think there's, there is something powerful there that we just, we need to retool or re-signify this figure in a way that can affirm it, perhaps, its feminineness, but its power. Right, 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 right. So so you've actually done some work in terms of collecting the stories and thinking about curiosity in with people in populations whose stories have historically been not just undervalued, but suppressed in pretty violent, literally and figuratively ways. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that in this curiosity context, because I think this is a really interesting part of your work. Great, yeah. So much of my work focuses on prison activism and the history of prison activism. And in this case, most of the ways in which prisons have been studied are from the outside. 
so that outsiders are bringing in the questions and answering the questions according to their kind of expected trajectories. Uh, but prison activism and prison resistance movements precisely pose questions about justice, about um, restorative justice and transformative justice from from within the voices of prisoners themselves. So that they pose the questions, they direct what is it that we need to rethink about how this system works. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's really powerful. That's one way. Another thread that I've been following is the transgender rights movement, which you mentioned earlier. And one of the things that's been ex- extremely exciting for me as I'm, I'm recently invested in this project uh, with Hampshire College. Mm-hmm. Hampshire College is a small liberal arts school in Western Massachusetts. It was founded in 1970 to precisely be not just a place of curiosity for students, but a curious institution itself, which kind of blows my mind when you put curious institution, to those two words together. <laughs> uh, um, but in, in this particular, this school has the most trans-inclusive policies of any college in the U.S. And I'm trying to figure out why. Like, uh, how did that happen? Did why this there? place? And, and I think it's through a really powerful um, ex- practice of curiosity that, that goes on there. And I'll just give one example. So the, all of their bathrooms um, across campus are gender neutral. That means that there aren't signs for men's bathrooms and women's bathrooms. Right. But how did, how did they get there or why? They needed this because the, the student population is 8% or more uh, transgender or gender nonconforming students. Mm-hmm. So they have a huge population compared to the you know, one or less percent of most colleges. So a huge student need, what do we do to make sure that everybody can use a restroom on campus? They thought rather than, and this is fairly radical, this happened about a decade ago, but today it's even more kind of contentious. Uh, where any any single bathroom being gender neutral is, is sort of a source of panic right. politically, right? right? Um, but they, they said, you know what, why don't we, instead of def- putting signs on the bathroom door that say, uh, that describe the person who gets to walk in, maybe we should put a sign on the door to describe the technology available inside. Oh. So they have bathrooms with urinals, uh-huh. that's one sign, and bathrooms without urinals, uh-huh. that's the other sign. And that's it. And I think this moment, this moment of what if we just described not the people who are going in, but the the technology or the architecture inside. Right, what they'll encounter when they get there. Right. Yeah. Then this somehow can change a social fabric, really. So so you're actually interested in institutionalizing curiosity. So here's here's an institution that is curious, right? Mm. You're interested in institutionalizing curiosity. Yeah. As a political act, mm-hmm. right? What does that actually mean? I mean, what can you learn from Hampshire? Where do you see that going? Yeah, I think, I think that we, first of all, I think that we need to think about curiosity as multiple. So there, there are many sorts of curiosity, many practices of curiosity. And we need to let those continue to thrive and keep asking ourselves how else does curiosity appear? So one of the things in my curiosity classes I do is I have my students write something called a curiosity journal mm. where they simply record when curiosity, the word curiosity shows up in their everyday life and when they see themselves being curious. And the more they ask, when was I curious? How was I curious? What did I do that I'm like, oh yeah, I was curious there or then or for that reason. They start to see, I think, the, the variability of this thing called curiosity. Mm. Um, that I think is keeps curiosity alive, keeps it curious. 
I think that's one place we need to go. We need more kinds of curiosity and attention to more kinds of curiosity. And then I think we need to really kind of frustrate this, the way in which the questions we ask get smaller and smaller and smaller and more specific. I think that we need to continue to break open because we're creatures of habit. If everyone's asking these questions, we'll just keep asking those questions and not open up to others. All right. Well, you know, I recently had a conversation with Matt Cronin from George Mason on the craft of creativity, but we started in on a bit of sort of the craft of curiosity. Mm. You know, what are the skills? What are the habits that you can build, that you can get better at, Mm -hmm. um, that will help you achieve some kind of predictable results in terms of your behavior? And you know, you've talked about the importance of attending to what gets passed over, mm-hmm. which I think is, is one of those sticky kind of simple rules of if I pay attention to what's being ignored or what's not being paid attention to, that's actually a pretty good craft of curiosity. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's yours. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the this makes me think of my work with the McNair Scholars Program, which is a, a program for jun- preparing junior and senior students um, from underrepresented, underrepresented groups for success in um, graduate school. Mm. And I worked with them for about four years in Chicago. And one of the students was a Chicana student from uh, the southern part of, of Chicago. And they said, you know, they, they studied his- art history. That was their passion. But they said they were typically the only brown body in the classroom, and they would keep raising their hands and not get called on. And as if they were not expected to have have a curiosity about art history, Mm. right? They were not the typical art history student. Mm. Um, And when they could get a word in edgewise, they would say, you know, I really want to bring in the history of Chicana art, especially Chicana Chicago art, into into this story. Um, and there was just a, an explanation from the professors that that's not real art, that's not true art, that's not high art. But they've gone on, they, I think, kind of been fueled by that experience, and they're now doing a, a, a Ph.D. in art, art history at the University of Michigan, one of the best programs in the nation. Yeah, cool. Um, but I think this is, this is it's, it's not only attending to, I think curiosity is not only attending to concepts that are passed over or questions that are passed over, but people that are passed over mm-hmm. and histories that are passed over. Mm-hmm. And and that's what this student is doing right now. And that I think if, if curiosity can do more of that, I'm all I'm all for it. That's pretty cool. So you're teaching this class in the spring, the power of curiosity. Yes. Right. What do you hope that your students will have in their heads, in their hearts, in their hands mm. by the end of that semester? Such a good question. <laughs> I want I want students to think one of the things that I've that I notice about students these days is they don't seem to believe that they can change things. Mm. They think they think the world has problems and they're not sure what to do and they just feel they seem imp- disempowered to me. Um and so one of the things I really want them to come away with from this class the power of curiosity is that they this is one of those tools that can revolutionize the world and that is that is empowering but that is also a deep responsibility how do i use this thing called curiosity for good how do i how do i make the world a better place how do i attend to the questions and to the people who've gotten passed over 
Wow. I can't wait to hear how it goes. (laughs) I can't wait to see how it goes. (laughs) So um, we are running out of time, but but there's always time for my big jar of wannabe analogies. You ready? I am. Okay. All right. So reach in. Take out a slip. I'm going to take one for myself and one for the audience. We're going to make analogies to curiosity with whatever we get. So um, you want me to go first or you want to go first? You can go first. Okay. Uh, Okay. I have zipper. Um, Mm -hmm. How is curiosity like a zipper? I think curiosity is like a zipper because a zipper is actually a, a tool, an instrument for bringing things together, for bringing two sides of something and knitting them together into something that holds. Mm. And I think curiosity can do that as well. That's beautiful. Ah, I love that. So what'd you get? I got salt. Salt. Ooh. Curiosity is like salt insofar as it, um, gosh, it makes everything better. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it just, it makes things come alive. I think it makes the potential of things um, alive and awake. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's... That's a powerful thing. Yeah, I think so. Okay, an audience. Hmm. Okay, how is curiosity like a cardboard box? <laughs> I don't know. Good luck. Let us know, right? Hashtag analogy. Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Thank you. Well, Perry, thank you so much for this. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can catch all my previous shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to Be Curious, or on my website at ChooseToBeCurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on Twitter at Choose Number Two, Letter B, Curious. Special thanks to my guest, Professor Perry Zern. Check out his MIT talk and other juicy links, all available on my Facebook page. Don't forget to send us your cardboard box analogy, hashtag analogy, and please make a generous donation at WERA.FM or call us at 703-524-2388. I hope you'll join us again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Choose to be curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.